Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, if you uh, if you don't know, if you need some help understanding why things have suddenly changed. Um, traditionally, the, the church has marked a calendar that does not exactly sync up with the 12-month calendar uh, of our year. In the church, we mark time differently because um, God governs differently than, than the world is necessarily governed. And so we've marked a new season in the church calendar by changing some colors. So the table uh, is uh, draped in purple instead of green. Um, And purple is the traditional color of Advent. That's why the the candles are mostly purple, and we can get to the pink one later. This is an art installment that Mark and Jacqueline Oliver have created for us, and it's going to change every week. So um, you'll see it look slightly different, or or maybe very different next week. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. Um, Also, um, this thing is here. You may have smelled this thing more than seen it. Um, I don't know if you could smell it when you walked in, but this uh, this is putting off frankincense. Um, which you may have heard of with some three guys traditionally that came to see Jesus. Um, frankincense, it's incense that, that we uh, churches will, will burn traditionally. Um, why, why do we do that? Why candles? Why smells? <clears throat> um, for a number of reasons that the worship of God's people has a long, long, long history, longer than Christianity, of, of being multi-sensory. Um, and what something like a smell can do or, or a candle can do is remind you that the presence of God is here. Not because this is especially sacred or candles are especially sacred, but it's a cue to remember that God's glory fills uh, fills the earth and dwells with his people just like a smell or light might fill a room. So it's a, a cue to remind you, God, God is here. He's not personal to you. He's not contained within you. He's not somewhere else. He's not like up in an observation room way up in heaven. He's here and his presence is here and fills the room as much as light or smell fills the room. Um, <clears throat> These are all just cues for you. These are not uh, in any way, in and of themselves, special, powerful, magical things. That's not what's happening. Um, But we need to be cued as people. We need to be reminded in any number of ways that God is present with His people and He is doing something in the world and He is marking time according to His purposes, and we want to be in sync with His time and His purposes, and these things remind us and help us of that. Um, If you are not familiar, Advent uh, just simply is talking about coming. It's about arrival. Um, And we are doing something in the season of Advent where we are looking backwards to the coming of Jesus um, in the incarnation and 
being born in Bethlehem and changing history, but we're also looking forward to the second advent of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. So if you're expecting to come into to church for the next few weeks and seeing Christmas stuff like red and green stuff everywhere and kind of hear a bunch of baby Jesus passages, you might have been jarred by coming here this morning and seeing all this purple everywhere and then hearing a passage that's about you know, be on guard because the Son of Man is coming back to gather the elect. Stay awake. Um, that, that's not a mistake. That's on purpose. This season, we are meant to look backwards and forwards as these people who are caught between the times of Christ's first coming and His second coming. So uh, our scriptures will, will carry both notes of those themes as we go on through these four weeks. I'm going to read here from Isaiah 64, which has implications for both of those senses, Christ's first coming and His second coming. It's Isaiah 64, 1-9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people." Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this season of Advent that's marked out for us to be reminded of what our appetites should be. We thank you, God, that we have things out there that we are meant to long for. You have made us longing creatures. And God, I pray that during this morning and throughout this season that you would shape our longings. That we would, we would see you. We would crave to see you better. God, stir up that hunger in us. And we wait for you, Lord Jesus, to come quickly. We thank You, God, for being here with us now. We pray that You would speak to Your people by Your Word and magnify Yourself. Amen.
I should mention uh, that our, our kids who are in the service, if you don't have a coloring sheet, does this get mentioned already? Does anybody say this? So our kids, we have younger kids in the room, and we have coloring sheets back in the lobby for them. Those coloring sheets have been uh, drawn for the kids by Jacqueline, who, who did these. So if you need something for your children, it's back there, I believe, on the table, and we'll have those for you um, every week. This, uh, this passage, Isaiah 64, is coming in this second part of the book of Isaiah that I mentioned last week. That's uh, this note of change in the book of Isaiah as uh, judgment has been pronounced on Israel for failing to be who they're meant to be. And it closes this first portion with this evidence that judgment has indeed come. And this second portion of Isaiah 40 to the end of the, end of the book has these promises of hope that's coming. And yet here in the midst of these proclamations of hope is a passage like this that on first glance does not seem all that hopeful. It's the prophet is the people pleading for God to come and to visit his people. And the imagery is scary. It is like the literal sun is getting closer and closer to the earth. That you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. It is this profound uh, sense of power coming near is what they're pleading for. And yet, in the midst of this plea for God to come, and to come quickly is also this unsureness, this lack of certainty, because they're realizing that their hearts, the hearts of the people, are defiled by sin. They're dirtied and sullied by iniquity. So when they are praying for God to come close, they're a little afraid of His coming because they're not quite sure they can bear to be close to Him. And Israel, of course, has plenty of reason to believe that. You know, we, we tend in our culture to sort of domesticate God to being this basically all-wise, benevolent Labrador puppy. That, that God just wants to cuddle you and give you kisses. And of course you want God to be close to you. But of course, the Bible tells different stories that would make us suspicious of that tendency. The Israelites have lots of stories where God comes close and people die. It's, it's not, not your Labrador Retriever puppy scenario. It's an entirely different scenario, one of fire and boiling water, and I don't know if I can take this anymore. In fact, there's the story of when God uh, brings His people out of Egypt and he brings them to the mountain, and God comes down, like in this story when Isaiah is describing, and only Moses is allowed to go up on top of the mountain to talk to God, and Israel is told, you cannot come up here. Not only can you not come up here, you cannot touch this mountain. If you touch this mountain, you will die. If your goat wanders off and touches this mountain, your goat will die. And Israel has plenty of other stories 
that totally validate this as not as an empty threat. The people were moving um, the Ark of the Covenant from one place to another. They were supposed to do it in a specific way. They did not do it that way. They were carrying it on an ox cart instead of carrying it on their shoulders. And there was a divot in the road and the thing started to tip and the box, the Ark of the Covenant was going to fall off. And a man reached out to catch it. And when he went to catch it, he touched the Ark of the Covenant exactly as he's not supposed to. And he died. It wasn't uh, oh, that's just a whoopsie. You tried real hard, guys. It was, you are dead. So Isaiah is delivering this message of pleading for God to come close. Yet there is in this, this fear, can God be close to his people? Can we be close to him? And this, is a, this is an especially relevant question for us at this time of the year. Because similarly, we like to make Christmas in the Christmas season about a cute and cuddly baby Jesus. Little, little baby Jesus in that Bethlehem stall. Who wouldn't love cute little baby Jesus? Baby Jesus coming and Somehow Santa gets mixed in there and there's, there's presents and there's magic and there's glee. Come on, baby Jesus. Merry Christmas. That's kind of how we, we think about and talk about the, the coming of Jesus. And yet the people of Jesus' day, the people who were looking forward to His coming, whether they knew they were expecting Jesus or they didn't know who they were expecting, they expected something entirely different when the Anointed One would come. They expected that the Anointed One would come and He would come with a sword. They were not expecting cute little baby Jesus to bring presents. They were expecting an army to ride in and for there to be deliverance and bloodshed. In fact, this is... This is what we can see in the, in the book of Luke when John the Baptist's father starts singing that the Messiah might come and he might deliver them with the power of the sword. God would cut a path to freedom for them. And so our expectations in this Christmas season, in this season of waiting for the coming of Jesus, are again often domesticated and, and neutered and tamed from the biblical version of pleading for God to come. Because when the Deliverer comes, when the Anointed One comes, when the Christ comes, when God comes, it is a lot closer to the sun moving closer to the earth than it is just that sweet little baby Jesus. The question should be kind of broiling in our guts. Do we want God to come? Do we want God to come? In fact, of all the times of the year, now is the time to ask that question. Us in our culture who puts the name of Jesus on a season devoted to consumerism, to busyness, 
to anything but worship? Do we really want to sing these Advent hymns and plead for God to come? Or ought we be a little concerned that He might actually do so? This is sort of what the the chapter 13 in Mark is, is getting at. You don't get to cruise into the day of the Lord's coming. You need to stay awake and stay watchful. Because when the Son of God appears, you do not want to be caught unawares. If you have thrown in your lot with all that is comfortable and powerful and popular, when the Son of God comes, you might ought to be afraid at His coming. This is the language of what's happening here in the middle of this section. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Those are the people that God remembers. Those are the people that are joyfully greeted by God. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. He uses these twin, very powerful images. The first one is sort of softened in your English translation. When he says your righteousness, what he actually says here, your righteousness is like the cloth used in a woman's monthly impurity. Remember, there's laws of ceremonial cleanliness. And this is a time in a month that a woman is impure. And he says, your righteousness is like that rag. And then he switches to this other image. You've been wasted away and rotted from the inside. You've become like a dry leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's this powerlessness in the imagery. You know, uh, if you've read or seen uh, the movie The Lord of the Rings, more that you've read the books, which you should if you want to be a Christian. If you hear in the narrative that when, when the ring is, is, re- is worn, it has this perpetual effect on the wearer. So ultimately, the person doesn't just become temporarily invisible. The power of the ring rots them away so they cease to be. And sin has that effect. Isaiah is saying, we have been wasting away like a leaf in this dry husk of dead nothingness then. When the winds of iniquity come, we helplessly are carried away by them. Do you want God to come? The answer for Isaiah is, oof, I don't know if we want God to come. Indeed, Israel would not be ready for a long time. In the book of Daniel, you can, you can 
hear Daniel wrestling with this in the latter part of his book as, as he is contemplating the length of their sentence in exile and he's realizing that sin has still trapped the heart of Israel and he's sort of broken up over the state of Israel as a sinful people in this impending theoretical exit from exile and God tells him actually uh, it's going to be seven times longer than it was initially supposed to be because the people have not repented. Israel was not ready. And then that's the very story that's acted out in the Gospels. John's indictment in the beginning of his Gospel and his beautiful prologue about the coming of the light of God into the world that he made, the devastatingly heartbreaking thing hidden in a couple of verses in that is that God's own people, the ones that He made, they themselves did not recognize the God who made them. Israel was not ready for the coming of God. Jesus' ministry is marked by people not seeing, not hearing, not believing, and ultimately willingly putting Him on the cross. Do we really want God to come? Are we sure that we are on the right side of things? What Isaiah speaks for us is the truth is we are not on the right side of things. None of us. There is no not, not a select group of people in this passage who actually are qualified to plead for the coming of God. Everyone's righteousness is worthless. But now, O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay, and You are our potter. We are all the work of Your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Ultimately, Isaiah's hope, the people of Israel's hope, is that God would take center stage and He would do what the people do not deserve. You are our Father. We are not the one who climbs up Jacob's ladder and ascend to heaven. You are the one who would climb down the ladder and come to us. We are not the ones who construct some righteousness. And if we did, our righteousness would fall fall short. But God... He is the one who molds us and shapes us. And as the potter makes us into something that is other than what we are. Do we want God to come? The answer biblically should be both no and yes. We say no because we confess that we are not prepared to stand before a holy God. 
We are not prepared to stand before Him clothed in our own righteousness. We recognize that in and of ourselves, we stand on the opposite side of the battle line of the King of Heaven who brings invasion. And that is a scary place to be. We do not want God to come. And yet the problem that's stated here in Isaiah 64 has within it the embedded answer. Because the one that God greets joyfully is the one who works righteousness. And the unforeseen truth of God's coming is that the righteous one becomes one of us and joyfully comes on our side and works righteousness on our behalf. So that when we stand and see the anger of God against sin that destroys His world, that messes with what He has made, we know that we do not have to fear that the anger has to be directed at us because God Himself has transported us, has carried us over onto His side. Because the one who works righteousness, Jesus, has come and invaded the story and subverted the plot lines in ways that we have not expected, ways that we could not foresee. So now we stand as people who stand on this side of the advent, the first coming of Jesus, and we look forward to His second coming. We know that we have never, ever, ever been able to stand at peace and at rest before God, but we know that Jesus, His cross is anchored into the ground forever, and it is not moving. And because of that, we need never fear again. We don't need to fear the coming of God. And yet there is still warning here. We are still, as Mark's Gospel says, we are still commanded to keep watch and to stay awake. Do not be so deceived that you think that now that Jesus has come, everything is fine forever and you can coast in to the end of the story. Because the truth about culture and about people and about the powers and principalities of sin is that they so easily entangle us. We still need to be watchful and mindful people because we can still be like Israel and miss the unexpected coming of the unpredictable God. We can be the ones with our eyes too much on power or pleasure or comfort or popularity. And we can be deceived ourselves. Stay watchful. But take comfort. Because the King is on your side. Take comfort. Because the One who we are longing for has come for the salvation of me and for you, and for all of those who would forsake their own strength and would trust instead in the strength of God who is our Father, who is the potter, who is the rescuer, the redeemer, the King who surely comes for His people. Advent is a time for cultivating that hunger 
for being uncomfortable in that hunger and looking forward to the promise of the long-expected Jesus who fulfills all of our hopes and even supersedes them. If you're here this morning and you realize that you have been caught up in this quote-unquote spirit of Christmas already, and what you've actually been caught up in is the spirit of this world, of busyness and consumerism and selfishness, and it was easy already for you to be lulled to sleep listening to the, the song the world sings. God has graciously given you this moment to repent. Shake your head, clear the cobwebs, wake up, say this is the real state of things. Jesus is king and not me. His kingdom is not of this world. This morning, don't leave aside that opportunity, but repent and make yourself ready for the coming of the king. And if you're here this morning and you have never seen Jesus as this coming, conquering king, there is a note of warning here for you. Don't casually get caught up in the, again, quote-unquote, spirit of the season and just say, yeah, it'd be great if God would come. Or baby Jesus is so cute. He is the one who rides in with power and holiness. But you need not stand before Him on your own two feet. He wants to shape you into something other than what you are in and of yourself. So this Advent season, look back to His first coming and take hope. But you can always look forward to His coming with joy. People of God, be hungry this Advent season. Be hungry for the coming of Jesus. And be grateful that He makes you ready for that coming. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is, is clear and strong and good for us. We thank You, God, that um, You are not as we would make you according to our own devices. You are bigger than us. You are bigger than our imaginations. You refuse to stay confined to our boxes. God, forgive us for domesticating you, for trying to tame you. And God, we pray that in this season, we would take advantage of these weeks to stop and reflect and repent and God, we pray that you would move close to us in the power and the presence of the unforeseen Jesus. We are so grateful for what you've done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, I pray that we would more and more find our identity there, our safety and security there. We thank you, God, that your love is such that you don't leave us to answer this question of your coming on our own two feet. But you long to be with your people and you make a way for us. And for all those gone both with us and who are elsewhere, we pray that all those who have never come to love and trust you this Christmas season would experience a miracle of the invasion of Jesus. 
God, we pray that you would trouble our friends, our family members, our co-workers, that you would trouble us into dreaming dreams of the coming Lord Jesus, that they would be called to the safety in your arms. Make much of yourself in us, Lord Jesus. Glorify yourself and set your people free. Amen.